Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel uh, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you all in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we're in the book of Philippians. We've been going through the book of Matthew for like a year and a half, and we've taken a little commercial break, if you will, and going to look at the book of Philippians for about the next two months, maybe two and a half. Uh, the dominant theme of the book of Philippians is joy, and so this entire fall as a church, we are, with everything inside of us, pursuing after joy. We're not talking about happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness can change at any moment. Happiness is good. But we're talking about joy, which is much more deep, much more abiding. And so we're talking about joy. And this tends to be the dominant theme of the book of Philippians. You'll see joy and rejoice is just kind of refrained over and over throughout the book of Philippians. And so it's not, it's not the content of every sentence, joy is not, but it is the dominant theme of the book of Philippians. And so over the course of this fall, one of the goals, one of the big picture goals that we have in going through Philippians is that us here at Remedy would really grow in our deep and abiding joy in knowing Christ and being in Christ. So that's, that's what's going on. And then after that, we'll go back to Matthew. And, you know, maybe by the year 2016, we'll be done with Matthew. We've been at it for at least almost two years. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Philippians uh, 1, 1 through 11. If you weren't here last week, I did kind of a half of a sermon of 1, 1 through 11, and we're going to do the second half this week. But I'm going to explain everything, so it's all hopefully going to make sense. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come here and gather around your word. We thank you for your word and that you've promised to us that it has the power to change us, to grow us in our Christ-likeness, to help us understand the gospel better, to know Jesus, that you speak to us whenever we read your word. Um, Though not audibly, you definitely by your spirit teach us and draw us into a deeper understanding. And Lord, since that's what your word says, these are the things that we come right now and beg that you would do. As we look at your word, we know that it's not like any other book, that in of itself there's power and there's gospel power in its message. And so we are absolutely dependent upon that happening today. If that doesn't happen, then this is an exercise in futility. And we are completely needing for you to come right now and supernaturally intend this mediation of your word so that we can understand it. I pray that it's not just, uh, this isn't a prayer just for those who are hearing, but for myself as well, who's speaking. We are all in desperate need to hear the great news of the gospel, whether we are believers or unbelievers. We need to know who we are in Christ. And so I pray that you would come do that now for us. 
I pray for myself, Lord, that you give me focus and clarity of mind, that my speech would be easy to understand, and that the message would be simple, though it may be complex and amazing, that it's still a simple message of Christ crucified on a cross for his people. And by faith, we can be forgiven. And so I pray that you help me, Lord, communicate that well, and that more than that, um, myself and all of us, we would be moved and deeply affected by that great news. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 11, which Gary read. So let me give you a little bit of a, an understanding of what happened last week and where we are, and I, you'll be able to track with us for the rest of the time. So <clears throat> and if you look uh, in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and that's basically the story of Jesus. And after Jesus has, di- has died and is resurrected, you have the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is just the story of how the church began. And so if you're reading through the book of Acts, and you get to around Acts chapter 16, which is um, roughly halfway through, 28 chapters in, in Acts. But as, as you're going through the 16th, and you get to the 16th chapter, um, there's a story where this guy Paul, who came to know Christ, uh, is, is going around. And basically what his, his idea was, Paul's goal was, after he got saved, was he would go to cities that didn't know Christ at all. It was a frontier missions, which means there's no... No believers in this city So I'm going to go there And I'm just going to evangelize as many people as I can And God's going to save people And I'm going to start a church there I'm going to raise up leaders and get that going And once I've done that I'm going to leave that city I'm going to, The Holy Spirit's going to use that leader And I'm going to go to another place And I'm going to do another frontier missions This is how Paul would do And he would go from city to city And so there was a, a dream he had As you're reading in Acts chapter 16 A man from the region of Macedonia says Come to Macedonia. And so Paul says, so we, you know, we figured out that God wanted us to go to Macedonia because of that. And so he goes over to the region of Macedonia and then the, the city of Philippi in the region of Macedonia. As you're reading through Acts chapter 16 and you can see uh, a lady that sells purple goods gets saved. A fortune teller gets saved. A jailer gets saved. And all of his family. And so that's, that's the core group of the church plant that Paul uses. And so um, he starts his church, crazy core group, but he starts the church. He raises up leaders, and then he leaves. And so the city of Philippi now has a church that's growing and growing and growing. About 10 years, maybe 15, maybe 20 years later, Paul's still doing frontier missions, and he finds himself in jail. And as he's in prison for the faith, now he didn't commit a crime. He's in, he's in jail for the faith. The Philippian church hears that Paul's in prison, and they just deeply love Paul. They just are so appreciative of what Christ has done in his life. They <clears throat> pull over Epaphroditus, cool name, probably don't want to use that today. Um, and he, he, they say, Epaphroditus, we care about Paul. He's in jail. We want to show that we, um, you can call him Paphri, maybe. So we, we want to show Paul that we care about him. So here's a gift. We don't know what it is. It, it's financial. It's some kind of gift or something. And so they send Epaphroditus over to Paul, as in, in, in prison, just to, just to minister to Paul, be his friend. And so he receives the gift. We know while Epaphroditus is there, he gets sick almost to the point of death. Philippians, I think it's 227, says that he almost dies. Maybe 221, 227, one of those. But the Lord heals him. And then after he heals him, before Epaphroditus goes back, Paul writes a letter, which is this letter, the book of Philippians, writes a letter and just expresses his deep love for the people of Philippians. Thank you so much for the gift that you gave me. I love you so much. I really appreciate you. And I want you to have a deep and abiding joy in Jesus. He writes the letter, gives it to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus goes back over to the city and they read it. And so here we are. This is the letter that he has. And so in the very first 11 verses that we read, um, 
those, those first 11 verses are just kind of some opening encouragements. You know, as we, if we wrote a letter, an email, or you probably don't write letters anymore, but an email, um, you would maybe open up your letter with some encouraging thoughts towards someone. You don't want to just launch into I need or launch into the content. You, you open up with some, I want to encourage you. I want to tell you some things. These are some things that are true, and then you can get into the body. Well, that's what's going on here. And so last week, we looked at those opening encouragements that Paul had for the Philippian church. Whom he loves. This is, this is a different letter than, than some of his other letters. And you can really feel that even in those beginning statements where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He doesn't launch into trying to prove his apostolic reign and his right to be able to say things. He just says, I'm a servant of you guys. I care about you deeply. <clears throat> and then you can see as he's going through, he tells them grace and peace. And even in verse 3, he says, I thank my God always and all my remembrance of you. Uh, there's even some ambiguity there in the original language the greek where it could be not just in all my remembrance of you but in all your remembrance of me and then he says because of all your remembrance of me i make these prayers for you so there's there's some ambiguity in that language that helps us see that there's deep love affections for both um, between the philippian people and paul and so he wanted to give them some opening encouragements last week. Now, here's what we did last week. I, I, I threw a, a change up at you, and maybe I messed you up last week. Everybody, um, I think, followed me, but we'll see. What I did, as I said, in those first 11 verses, there's four opening encouragements that Paul gives to these people. And so what I did is I, I skipped number one, and I just did two, three, and four. And so today we're going to go back to one. But let me remind you of what those other three, the number two and number three and number four were last week, just so you can be with us. Um, the second one that we talked about is that in verse six, there's a, there's a promise, and he said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so the encouragement that Paul says is, if you have been saved, the promise, the absolute promise of God is that you are going to become more like Jesus in your life. If God has saved you, you will see sin decrease in your life and Christ's likeness increase he who began this good work will bring it to completion the completion is perfection Christ likeness for his glory not our own and he, that's, a, that's an amazing promise that he says so just as an opening encouragement for anybody that's struggling with sin and ongoing sin and feeling like you're just not ever going to measure up verse 6 Paul says there's a great amazing promise for you if you're in Christ you are going to be more Christ-like now it's going to take work we're going to talk about that to actually today. But that's a great promise. The third encouragement, or the second of last week, because remember we skipped the first one that he gives them, is that in verses 7 and 8, you can just see the mushy language Paul uses as he talks about how deep he cares about them, how much he loves them. You can see that where he says um, in verse 7, I hold you in my heart and how I yearn for you for all the affection of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is verbally expressing love, but he also um, physically expressed love by actually going to them back in Acts chapter 16 and letting them know, hey, you're a sinner and you need Christ. Paul was at all fronts showing them deep love affections. And so we saw that we need to be actively expressing love towards others. So that was the second encouragement. It's just this outward, tremendous display of love. So he promised them they're going, to be, they're going to be sanctified because Christ promised that. The third one is that he actively expressed love. And the fourth one is he just flat out told them, you need to rejoice because you have partaken in grace from Jesus. And those were the, the three encouragements from last week. The first encouragement that I skipped, I'm going to tell you right now. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty, you know, you don't have to really try to search to figure it out. Right there in verse 3, I thank my God, here it is, in all my remembrance of you, verse 4, 
always and every prayer of mine for you all, making it, with, making it with joy. So here's the first encouragement, if you will, that we didn't do last week. Paul just simply looks at him and says, I pray for you a lot. I pray for you a lot. Now, that might not like, like that's not encouragement, but if you've been prayed for, I, I, I get notes, texts, emails, or whatever from people that say, Fudd, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. That's a tremendous encouragement, a, a huge, huge encouragement. So the first thing that he actually encourages them with, and he just lets them know, I am praying for you, not just a minute amount, but continuously, and all my remembrance of you, I am thinking about you because, fill in the blank, and we can see all that in the rest of the 11 verses, I care about you, I know sanctification is going to happen, but the big picture encouragement he gives, number one, is I am praying for you. And that's just a tremendously encouraging thing. So that's kind of the wrap-up of last week's sermon, that he's praying for him. Now, what I'm going to do today is I want to look at the content of those prayers. So you can, if you want to, you can go up to that number one, and there's going to be some subpoints in that number one, because today's sermon is, what's the content of the, of the Pauline prayers? We like to do a lot of peace here. What's the content of the Pauline prayers that he prays? So that's silly. So anyway, um, this is what he's going to do. What we're going to do is in verses 3 through 5, and then verses 9 through 11, we're going to see the content of these prayers. And I'm, what I'm hoping that you're going to see is as Paul expresses the content of the prayers to the Philippian church, we're going to take that and we're going to say, okay, if that's the content of the prayers, then how does that directly apply to us? And what are the things that we need to be thinking about in our life? And those will be our four points that we're going to look at today. So the title of today is Gospel-Centered Prayers. And let me explain what I mean by gospel-centered prayers, because if you're going to notice today, the content of these Pauline prayers is not the grocery list. It's, the, it's, it's more gospel feel in it. So let me explain what I mean. Um, Paul's going to talk about avenues and aspects and elements of and reflections of, since you've been saved by Jesus, these are the things that are evident or happening in your life. Those, those are the gospel-centered feel of prayer. It's not the grocery list. You know, my kid, he's not smart, God. I just need for him to do better in school, and I got a you know, thing, and I got this. It's, I'm not saying that those grocery list kind of things are bad. The Lord tells us, actually, to come, and, and as, as the Father wants, we want to hear, Tell him all the things that are going on. I'm not smart. I'm failing class, and my boy's crazy, and, you know, my mom, she's crazy too, and help me with this, and I don't have any money. I can't pay my bills. I'm really hungry, and I'm tired of ramen noodles. Like, all the little things that you fill in, like, he wants us to do those things, and those things are okay. It's okay to always come to the Lord with your grocery list. However, if that's all you pray, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying... You also need to have, and if you just read through the New Testament of the content of the prayers that are just written out for us, or the content of what people pray about in the New Testament, generally, they're more gospel-centered, gospel element, kind of oriented towards about the things of Jesus and his gospel, not just, you know, hey, we need a new boat or a new TV or, or whatever. Um, not that those things are bad to pray for. God wants us to do that. I mean, if you're praying for like a 60-inch flat screen, we need to talk about that after the service, but um, that might not be the most... Well, maybe it is. Who knows? Probably, but I would doubt it. Um, but let's, let's just kind of put it out there that what we're trying to talk about here is the content of that first encouragement, which is, I'm praying for you. And what are those things I'm praying for? I'm going to be praying for four things that are trying to highlight the gospel centrality nature in your life of what Christ would be doing. I'm praying for this for Philippians, and then we're going to take those things, and we're going to apply them to us right now in this room, 2012. So... 
Let's go ahead and look at what the content of these four things are when we're talking about partnership or or, or we're talking about prayers. Look at verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So Paul is just saying, Lord, Philippians, I I thank the Lord when I think about you and that work that the Lord let me do 10, 15, 20 years ago when I got to plant that church. And I thank him always in every prayer of mine. And this is just in generalizations. It doesn't mean that he necessarily every time he prayed over for 20 years that he always prayed for the Philippians. He planted lots of churches. But he's he's using general language, says, "I, I care about you very much. And look what he says. For you all making my prayer with joy because, and here's, Here's one of the, that first thing, one of the contents of that, of that gospel centrality of prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So we know that from 10, 15, 20 years ago, whenever they first met Paul, there has been a, uses the word partnership in the gospel. This word partnership sometimes is translated in other places in the New Testament as fellowship. The Greek word behind it is koinonia. This koinonia is, when sometimes it's translated fellowship, it doesn't mean, koinonia sometimes, or, or fellowship in 2012 just means, well, we want to have a fellowship. So after church, whenever we go hang out by the coffee pot, we're having a fellowship. Or, you know what, I want to have a fellowship with uh, these people in the church, so we're going to eat some ice cream and sit around the table and have an ice cream social. Or we're going to sit across for, for a cup of coffee at Starbucks and just kind of shoot the breeze and have some fellowship. That's... That's not necessarily the fullness of what we're talking about here. And that's why even in this text, you can see that it's translated partnership and not fellowship. Because partnership, um, or this fellowship koinonia, this idea uh, 2,000 years ago, carried the idea also of a, of a financial partnership with it. Remember, they sent a gift. Paul's in prison, and they sent some kind of gift, probably financial, because that financial gift or that, that partnership that they gave him was for the purpose of not just kind of sitting across the coffee table and shooting the breeze, and we just love each other and feel so warm now. Mmm, what a great fellowship. All right, it's also, it's, it's part of that, but it's also, we're going to fellowship together. It's going to cost us something, and this cost is for the purpose of advancing the gospel. There's a, there's a reason of this fellowship. It's not just warmth, but it's advancement of the gospel. And so here's the first element, if you will, of this gospel-centered prayer that Paul tells to them I am grateful for your gospel partnership. I am grateful for your partnership, your being willing to sacrifice financially for the advance of the gospel. That's what Paul says. So for us, the first thing for us, the the direct translation is, this gospel-centered prayer leads us to say, we must give ourselves to sacrificial gospel partnership. Sacrificial gospel partnership. The thing about this is that this is a tiny little Philippian church plant. Um, and they didn't just say, well, one day, whenever we're bigger, whenever we have more money, whenever we have more people, whenever I have more time, that's whenever I'm going to be able to really start doing some, some fellowship, partnership with the gospel. Instead, they rolled up their sleeves and they said, right now, wherever I am in life, this is the time to start self-sacrificing my time, my gift, my finances for the advancement of the gospel. And so Paul sees that and he thanks them for that. And so what we need to realize is your short little life, we, we don't run, we don't wait till we finally arrive to start sacrificing. You don't need to wait till you finally have enough money or finally have enough time or finally get more gifted or finally have a degree. That's not the point. The point is, if you're in Christ, this is all predicated if you're in Christ and you trusted in Christ for the gospel. It's time, whatever your station in life to start right now, start making 
major sacrificial gospel partnerships for the advancement of the gospel. That's what Christ expects from us. And this is what I mean by sacrificial. It means whenever I'm going to do this, the act of this happening, it's going to sting a little bit. Not, not in a bad way. It's going to hurt. It's going to, you know, I can give that and I can give that. But this last little piece, man, if I give that, there's going to be an element of faith that I'm going to have to have in God that he's going to be able to just provide for me and, and bring me through this. Because I know if I do that or I give that amount of time or if I give that little sacrificial part, that means that's reached me to the point of faith in God now where, <laughs> Lord, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can give that extra bit of time. I don't know if I can give that extra bit of money. I don't know if I can do that extra thing to advance the gospel i know that i can do that and i'm comfortable but god's saying and i also want you to have a sacrificial partnership in the gospel i mean just look at the philippian church what were some of the ways that they partnered they gave their money or a gift or something they sent something to paul they also were actively praying for their leadership whether it be paul or whoever uh, and that's a good thing praying for your leadership those in authority spiritually over you is a tremendously good thing and lastly they were not just sending that over to Paul in the prison he was in, but they were actively evangelizing in their city as well. They were for the advancement of the gospel. So maybe you could just even look at those three things and say, how am I doing in my sacrificial advancement of the gospel in evangelizing in my city? How am I doing in sacrificial giving towards the kingdom? How am I doing and praying for the authority or spiritual authority and leadership that God has placed over me. If you're not a member of Remedy, then whatever church you attend. If I'm not, this isn't like a, uh, like a side note. So the conclusion is, therefore, give a good offering today. That's not what I'm saying at all. Like, I'm saying there's kingdom work that you can be sacrificing your money towards. It doesn't have to be this church. There's, there's good kingdom work all over the place where the gospel is going to be preached. And what Christ wants and what this prayer, this gospel-centered prayer, the content of it is, there's a huge challenge to say, I want to start advancing forward in my partnership, my fellowship, my koinonia in advancing this gospel. Because I only have a mist of life, a vapor, and then I'm gone. And I don't need to try to wait until I've made enough money. I don't need to try to wait until I'm finally educated. Because that's not what the point is. The point is, I've met Christ Wherever I am, whatever gifting I have, now it's time to start sacrificing. Now it's time to start moving this forward to advance the gospel. And this is what they're doing here, that they were wanting to advance the gospel. So let's just kind of ask this big picture question as we finish out number one. What would it look like in your life? What would it look like in your life if the fellowship of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel were the center of your relationships? or the center of your finances and gifting and talents and time. Let's just think about relationships. Whenever you're getting together with people, if the advancement of the gospel and the fellowship of the gospel are the center of your relationships, whenever you get together with people, sure, you're going to talk about food and weather and sports, and those things are good. You should do those things. We, we're not just robots where we just talk about this one thing. We have feelings, and we live in life, and we have all kinds of things that happen, and I see you got a new car, and man, it's freezing in here, and we talk about those things. We, but after that, is that only the content, the superficial levels, or is there a, an advancement forward where we're also going to talk, talk about the gospel? In our exchange, we're going to, this isn't a word, but I'm going to use it, gospelize each other. If Maybe it is a word. But we're going to talk about 
you're a believer, and I see that you're struggling with something. Therefore, I need to tell you who you are in Christ and remind you of that. Or you're not a believer, and I need to tell you that you need Christ so that you can be saved. Is there the superficial levels of relationship, or does it ever get to the advancement of the gospel in your relationships? And then moving on to the others, which is the bulk of of your uh, interactions with people. Is it just getting things done, knocking off the to-do list, you know, cleaning the house, mowing the lawn, blah, blah, blah. Or is some of your time, some of your money, some of your talents being used sacrificially, not just that first level, which is easy, but that next level is, I'm, I'm trusting you by faith, Lord, to give this. I just, I want to lean in on you and trust you here. Is there that going on in your life where we are willing to sacrifice those kinds of pieces for Christ? So that's the first piece that we see in verses 3 through 5. He is thanking them for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now let's move down to 9, and you can see where the continuing of prayer idea is there, right there in those first few words of 9. And it says, and it is my prayer. So we can see that he's continuing in this idea of what would be the content of his prayer. And I think these are all very gospel-centered prayers. All right, um, verse 9, he says, and it is my prayer that your Love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, we're going to use verse 9 for numbers 2 and 3, but we're going to take them one at a time, clause by clause, or first half of the sentence with second half of the sentence. So first half of the sentence says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. All right? He doesn't say, and it is my prayer that you would have more food, more grocery list oriented. He's talking about something that is an evidence of and part of this element of the gospel love and so he tells them it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more so the second thing is as paul's saying that we're hearing from the scriptures that we need to actively work for love to increase you need to actively work for love to increase in you now here's the interesting thing the object of that love is not put in the text it's left ambiguous he just says It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. To who? (laughs) To what? Well, it's ambiguous. And so I think it's ambiguous and left open because it's towards God and towards others. It's both. So the answer is yes, Paul would say. Who is it? Yes, he would say. It's both of them. So the second thing is, is that we would need to actively work towards love to increase in us, to be more loving towards people, that whenever things happen, that our first inclination reaction towards people is not, um, it's not a hate-filled kind of snapping back, but instead that we have a deep heart love towards God and fellow man, and so we, we react towards love towards God, and because of that, we in turn act loving towards other people. Now remember, all of that is based on the gospel. We're not talking about some kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, self-help, just be a more loving person, feel good kind of stuff. That's only possible if Jesus does that in your heart. But that's what we're talking about. Actively work towards loving other people. Now, this is where it gets, this is where it gets really, really awesome, okay? The point of this love, or there is a point to this love, and it's coming from something. And I want you to notice there in the second half of the sentence, the way that you're going to increase, how do I increase in love, But I want to increase in love. That sounds good. Do I just sit here and, hope love just springs out there's there's a way that love happens all right look at he tells us right there in verse 9 and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more look at that with knowledge and all discernment okay that's helping us that's helping us understand so here's the third one and it's very much connected to number two 
grow in your knowledge of God and his gospel. He tells them that it's my prayer that you would grow in your love. It's my prayer that you would grow in knowledge. And so he's saying that here for us, we need to grow in our knowledge of God and his gospel. D.A. Carson, he's just a commentator, as he's looking at this, says, Paul wants the Philippians um, to enjoy an insight into God's words and ways or have a knowledge of God that, that grows and becomes very large and thus know how now to live in light of that. So there's a reason why we want to grow in knowledge. So what we don't want is for ourselves just to become super, super knowledgeable with no purpose. We're not talking about um, the warning of 1 Corinthians 8.1, you know, where it says uh, knowledge puffs up. We don't want to just because people can go get seminary degrees. People can memorize the entire book of the Bible um, and not necessarily grow in love. So we're not just talking about growing in knowledge of God just as an end in of itself. That's why number three is very much connected with number two. John Calvin said this. Um, he, uh, he lived about 500 years ago. He was just a brilliant commentator. He says, The greater proficiency we make in knowledge, so much more ought our love to increase. In, in other words, there's, there's a correlation between the more that we grow in our knowledge of God, that should be also correlated to the more that we grow in our love of God. The more knowledge we have of Him, the more that we should love Him. It's, it's foreign concept, especially in the first century writers, that you grow in the knowledge of God, but you don't grow in the love of God. That's, that's a foreign concept to them. The more you know him, how can you not then also become more in love with him? So this is the, the idea that he's saying. The point is then of growing in our knowledge is to grow more deeply in love with him. Love is necessary for a deeper knowledge. So D.A. Carson, again, is talking about this idea of people that are, that are trying to fragment out or compartmentalize out their relationship with God. And he says this, no one can say this. No one can say, I'm going to improve in my prayer life, but not in my morality. No one can say that. Or no one can say, I'm going to increase in my knowledge of God, but I'm just not going to do anything about obedience. I don't need to worry about that. No one can say, I'm going to grow in my love for others, but I don't have to worry about purity. No one can say that. Instead, he says, the Christian life embraces every facet of our existence. When Christ comes and saves us, he doesn't just want to save us in certain pieces. He wants to save every single part of you. Therefore, he says, all of our living, all of our doing, all of our thinking, all of our speaking is to be discharged and joyfully submitted unto God and his Savior, Jesus. So, what we're talking about here is growing in a knowledge of God that also increases um, our deep love of God. So those are the two challenges he gives them. Therefore, I want to say, absolutely, please, keep on pursuing knowing more about Jesus. Read the Bible, read theology books, read, listen to podcasts, listen to sermons, do all those things. I mean, you must do all those things, I think. This, these are some of the great gifts that the Lord has placed around us in this particular year and time period with technology that we just have so many, um, so many resources at our fingertips of learning more and more and more. We have a printing press. Think about that. That's only 500 years old. Like we have a printing press. Books at our disposable every, are, are disposable everywhere. But here's the thing. 
absolutely learn and read and become learners and readers and know more about Jesus. But please, please, while you do that, realize it's for the purpose of increasing in your love affection for Jesus. That's the point of it. It's not to say, look how big my big fat brain is and how much I know about Jesus. You don't know anything. Like, that's, that's not loving. That's not the point. The point is, as I grow in a deep love affection for Jesus, if my head gets bigger, my heart needs to get just as big, if not bigger, towards God and towards other people. That's the point. And so there's a, there's a correlation between number two and number three, that as we grow in our deep love for people and God, that we'd also grow in our knowledge and our discernment, which leads us to this last one. There's a reason why he wants us to grow in our love and our discernment and our, and our love um, of him and knowledge because it, it does something in our life. Now, look what it has here. In verse 10, it says, so that, so it's connecting us to verse 9, I want you to grow in knowledge and I want you to grow in love so that as you're going through life, you're going to be able to approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ to the glory of god so the reason why he wants us to grow in love and grow in knowledge is so that we may be able to approve of what is excellent so let's 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 understand that language approve of what is excellent this means as you're going through life not not maybe but when like it's, it's not if but when as you're going through life temptations, and I mean, if you're human, you know this, bombard you at every moment. And they're just temptations to go and, and not show love for God and others, but show love for self and sin. And as they come to you, whenever that temptation comes, this is my moment to approve of or disapprove of what I'm going to do. Do I want to approve of that sin or do I want to approve of Jesus and, and what he asked me to do? So I want to approve of what's excellent. The more I grow in knowledge and love, whenever those things come, I can say no to that, but instead now I can approve of what is excellent. So this is what Paul tells him in this gospel-centered prayer. I want you to be able to live in a certain way. It matters to Jesus how you live. And that's that fourth prayer. And since that's the prayer, this is where he tells us, and I'm, I'm going to have to do some explanation on this fourth one because it's Kind of crazy language. Become excellent in the gospel. Become excellent in the gospel. So he says he wants them to approve of what is excellent. Now, what does that mean? What am I talking about? Am I just saying that you need to have, you know, at the top of every one of your tests, a gold star and just be excellent? You need to be, that's not necessarily what we're talking about because he says right here, so that you may approve of what is excellent. And what does that mean? And so be pure and blameless. So we're getting a little bit of definition of excellence. So when we say become excellent in the gospel, this means that you should have continual strivings forward in your holiness, in your Christ-likeness, or the big you know, $10 seminary word, your sanctification. We've already seen in verse 6 the beautiful promise that it is going to happen. Your sanctification, if you're in Christ, is a promise that it's going to happen. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who saved you is going to fully save you whenever you die. Praise God! We're going to be more like Christ. We will eventually be perfected for his glory, not our own, when we get to heaven. But he's also telling you, in that meantime, you need to start 
orienting your life, thinking that you want to become excellent in the gospel. I want to, as best as my ability, pursue Christ's likeness, pursue holiness in my life. Now, you need to know that just because, um, I forgot to say this in the first service, just because it's a promise in verse 6 doesn't mean it doesn't take work. So let me explain what I mean. I don't know what happened. Like, I'm not sure what happened in the city of Rock Hill, but for some reason, it must have been like somebody flew over my house and just dropped 50,000 ant piles in my yard. And I have been, like, for weeks now, fighting ant piles. I I guarantee you, I have put ortho or whatever that stuff's called on 50-something ant piles in my yard. They're everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere. The only reason I knew is because, like, my, my... my daughter, she's, well, I got four kids, but my youngest was out there, and she's got ant bites all over her, uh, her legs. She was out playing in the backyard, and they just climbed up, and, you know, whenever things like that happen, Christy calls me, and this is the worst to be on the other end of the phone. You're like, what is it? What is it? What's going on? You're like, you're freaking out, and you find out it's ant bites. Okay, you get home. Can we, when, can we talk? When you call me, like, I felt like Iraq had, like, bombed our house. Can you just make sure I know that it's ant bites and not terrorists or something? You freaked me out a little bit. I just want to, like, Mario Andretti home. But um, my point is, like, we have ant bites or ants all over our house. I mean, not in our house, but over, all over our yard. And so from that, you know, I, I, got, I got really mad at ants because that's my girl. And, you know, you don't mess with my girl. And so I'm just out killing ants everywhere in the middle of the night with my flashlight. Like, at 11, I'm pouring it on there, stomping them up, stirring them up, and giving them. So I'm, my point is this. Like, for the last two or three weeks, I have been, and another thing, that ortho, it's not ant killer. It's just ant mover. You know, it's like, all right, we don't like this place anymore. We're moving over here and building a bigger house. So, like, that's what it seems like has been going on. So, like, I have been fighting ants for three weeks now in my yard, trying to figure out what's the best thing, like, that granules or powder. And I've been researching. My point is, it's taken a lot of work to put to death the ants in my yard. A lot of work, weeks of hard labor out with a flashlight in the middle of the night. Now, that's the exact same with your sin. It's the exact same. It's a lot of work. Sin just doesn't put itself to death by itself. That's why we're commanded in Romans eight thirteen: put to death um, your sin by the Spirit. That's why we're told in Colossians 3, I think it's 5, put to death sin. Be active in it. Now, just because it's promised to us in verse 6, he who began this good work will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean it doesn't take work on your behalf. Now, if you get to Philippians 2, 11 and 12, I know it says that all the while that while you're doing it, God did it, agreed, but still you're doing it. So when we talk about here, become excellent in the gospel. Never be satisfied with mediocrity in your life in regard to killing sin. As soon as you are satisfied with mediocrity, you will be overtaken by it. John Owen, great Puritan, said, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Always be killing sin. So what we're talking about here in becoming excellent in the gospel, and I kind of left it broad because I'm talking about killing sin in your life, actively knowing it, and striving by the Spirit to put it to death, but also as people in your life need to understand the gospel. You're excellent in the gospel so that you can tell them the gospel. You can tell them what Christ has done on the cross. You can tell them that Christ has defeated sin for them on their behalf. And you can tell them that by the Spirit, they can be seeing sin be put to death in their life. We want to be excellent in the gospel and killing it in our lives, sin, and telling other people. So this is what we're talking about. He wants us to be able to approve of what is excellent. 
so that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. What he's coming after in your life and in my life, what he is deeply desiring is pure, blameless. If you were, if somebody said, if my four-year-old came up to you and said, I heard this new word today, pure and blameless. Could you just define that word for me? How would you define it? I mean, you'd start thinking about, you know, how clean and how white and how spotless and whatever words you're thinking right now, that's the exact words that Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to be. That's who you are in Christ, and that's who I want you to be. That's what I want you to pursue right now in your life. So, that means as we're walking around, as I said, we're walking around life, and temptation comes to gossip. Temptation comes to be lustful. Temptation comes to be apathetic towards people. Temptation comes to just be lazy. You look at that and you say, no way. I am pursuing excellence in the gospel. I am pursuing excellence in Christ. There's no way I'm doing that because Christ has called me to far more, far more joy is found in Christ. No way are you coming after me. I'm going towards Christ. So this is what we're talking about. Never be satisfied with mediocrity. Instead, tell that I'm going to be what's already promised to me in verse 6. Sin, you can forget it. I'm promised that I'm going to be like Christ. I'm coming after that. I am going to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. So being pure and blameless means that we don't just merely accept what's true of us in verse 6, but we also lead a life that goes after that with everything in our life. We pursue it with everything we can. Because the gospel has declared us righteous, we are now going to pursue Christ-likeness, righteousness in our life. And we don't have to hide the fact that we're a sinner. Instead, just the opposite. We say, yes, I am a sinner, and the only hope I have is Jesus. He's the only hope I have. The gospel is it's all I cling to is that he died for me on the cross, bearing all of my sin, bearing all of the wrath and anger of the Father for me, so all the Father knows now is never anger, never wrath, but always love and acceptance because of Jesus. I am completely forgiven of my sin because I put my faith in Christ and him alone for salvation. Now, there's a danger. There's a little bit of a danger here. And Paul sees the danger when we're talking about pursuing this excellence. Um, the danger is to think that if you do that, that you're doing it, you're doing it on your own. When you, if you get to the end and you become more excellent in something, I did that. That's the first danger. And the other one is, and I'm doing it because I want to have a good reputation. I want people to think highly of me. I want people to think I got it all together. You know, isn't it amazing how... I don't know if you tweet or not, but isn't it amazing how everybody on Twitter seems to have it together in their life? <laughs> no one has it together. Like, wow, you're so deep and you, everything's happening all the time. Everything's always perfect in your life. And we like follow them around. Their, their life's a wreck just like yours. I don't know if you have Twitter, but that's just what an insight I've noticed. Um, we all make ourselves look far better on those things than actually what's going on. But that's the danger when we're pursuing excellence, that we can think that we've done it and we can think we've done it because we need to have a good reputation. And Paul addresses both of those right there in verse 11 when he says, you need to be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit and righteousness that comes from Christ. You didn't do it. Christ did it. Doesn't erase the responsibility that you have to pursue it. But Christ still did it. 
and you're not doing it for your reputation. So people think good of you. Look what he says. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And here it is. To the glory and praise of, my name's not there. Your name's not there. To the glory and praise of God. I'm not doing it for my reputation. I don't really care about it. I care that Jesus is lifted high. And as long as I'm pursuing that, then that's fine. I want my character and reputation to be Christ-like. That's my only hope. It's our only hope. So he addresses both of those and he sees both of those. And he has this gospel-filled prayers for them where he's saying, what does your sacrificial partnership look like? What does your love of God and other people look like? Therefore, and what does your knowledge in pursuit of the things of God look like? And what does holiness look like in your life? What does the pursuit of excellence in Christ and the gospel look like in your life? And these are these four gospel-centered prayers that he's saying that he's been praying for them. And I just want to end with this. If those are the things that he's praying for, what are you going to pray for in this? What are you praying for? Are you praying that you would learn to be more sacrificial in your partnership with the gospel? You know whether you're sacrificial or not. I don't have to come and follow you around and ask to look at your checkbook and give me the list of all your gifts and talents and let's look at your, your actions and see if you're doing those things. And, and I don't need to do that. You know. No one knows better than you. Are you sacrificially living out a fellowship in the gospel in order to advance the gospel or not? Or are you just coasting? Maybe that's what you need to pray for in your own life. Maybe you just don't find a deep abiding love for God and others. Your reaction towards things is always sharp, not loving. Maybe that's what you need to pray for. A deep and growing love for God and others, which comes from a deep knowledge. Maybe you just have an aversion towards learning. You shouldn't. I mean, think about this. God didn't choose to speak to us via video or podcast. He gave us his word. He spoke to us through a written book, which means you can't be a Christian and say, I'm not a reader. You just can't. Those things don't go together. And so maybe you just have an aversion towards reading and knowledge. That's, that's not the way that God has called and, and set up the things to know him. This is where we see him. This is where we know him. So we have to be a reader, at least of this book. And there's other resources around that point us back to this book. If, they're not, if those other resources are not about this, then don't read them. But if they point us back to this and drive us into the word, to know Christ in his word, you need to grow in your knowledge so that you grow in your love of Jesus and others. Maybe that's where you need to pray. Love God more know him more deeply and intimately or lastly maybe you just need to become more excellent in the gospel you are just far too familiar with and far too more far too comfortable with sin in your life when i'm in college i'll I'll kill that whenever i'm out of college i'll kill that whenever i finally get married and have kids that's when i'll finally whenever i finally you just keep kicking the can down the road on trying to kill that sin. You're just far too comfortable with it. He's calling us now to be excellent in the gospel. Be what's promised in verse 6. Now. And pursue after it with everything you have. 
Which one are you praying? Maybe you're praying that. This is what we do at Remedy. We don't put the bulk of our worship in the beginning and then the sermon. We have one song that focuses our hearts and minds on Jesus, readily acknowledges that he's our hope and our portion, and then we hear from him the word. You didn't hear from me. I, just like you, heard from Jesus. And now we have some space here where we have three or four songs where we can sit. And if God has talked to us, God himself has talked to us, not, you know, your uncle or your crazy cousin, but God himself has talked to us. If God has just talked to you right now, you can't just in three minutes kind of say, okay, what's next? We need some space to think and reflect and let the Holy Spirit do his convicting work and pray and consider and, and confess. And so we've got space here for you to do that right now. You've got 20 at least minutes. So maybe for the first little bit, you want to just sit and read some scripture and pray and just think about the places, those, those places that I need to think about and confess. I need to become more sacrificial in my advancement of the gospel. I need to be more loving. I need to be more knowledgeable. I need to be more vigilant about killing sin and be excellent in Christ. Whatever the Holy Spirit, I, d- I don't know where the Holy Spirit's leading you right now, but I am confident that the Holy Spirit is pressing in on you just like he's pressing in on me. And so we all have some work here that we can think about. And I'm just going to say, wherever the Spirit's leading right now, whatever he's saying to you right now, don't push it away. Just take this time to think and pray and confess. And then, with us all, just stand. And whatever way God's wired you, just sing and reflect back worth and worship to Jesus for what he's done. And then, leave here ready to see those things happen and trusting God that he'll do it and pursuing it with all your might. So we're going to have a time of worship here where we can, we can think and confess and sing and praise God and be thankful. So the band's going to come out now and I'm going to pray and this is your chance to respond. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time where we can worship you and study your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word has power. And we are absolutely dependent upon your spirit. So I pray for my friends here, Lord, if there's anyone here that you're dealing with right now, they wouldn't shove it aside and say, next month, next year, later on. But if you're speaking to them right now, they would be obedient to that leading. They would be submissive to that leading. And that they would confess and trust and be thankful for the gospel and, and worship. For those that are in Christ here that know Jesus, I pray that the work you're doing of repentance and confession would lead them to the joy that is given. We're not after just temporal happiness. We're after a deep and abiding joy in Christ. And confession and repentance is part of that. And for those here, Lord, that if they walked in the room and today and they said, you know, I don't know that I know Jesus. I've never really made a f- profession of faith in Christ in the gospel. I don't, this is all new to me. If right now they're feeling a, a desire towards becoming a believer, trusting Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, and want to begin a life of, with Christ, I pray that, Lord, you would give them the courage to talk to me, talk to the person they came with, and they can know today how they can be saved by Jesus and have that promise that they will one day have their salvation fully come about. Be with us all now as we stand and sing and just 
interact with the Spirit and God right now in this time of response. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.